Just a note, this episode of Left Behind contains details about battle that may be unsuitable for some audiences. The Japanese infantry started down Bataan Peninsula's East Road at 3 p.m. on January 9, 1942. It was a normal January day on the peninsula, with temperatures in the mid-80s Fahrenheit and humidity around 80%, so it was hot and humid. And it probably wasn't a comfortable march down the primitive dirt road in full uniform, in columns stretching out miles along the road. Adding to the discomfort would be the threat of attack, especially from the large guns they suspected were camouflaged nearby. But, as it turns out, those Japanese soldiers would be the ones to initiate the first fighting on the peninsula, firing the first shots of what would become known as the Battle of Bataan. The Imperial Japanese Army's leadership thought the U.S. fighting withdrawal to Bataan during the previous two weeks had weakened the Filipino and American servicemen. So, the Japanese generals began their offensive advance with a barrage of artillery guns, followed by those soldiers coming down East Road. But this group of Japanese soldiers marching down the road didn't get far before those hidden American artillery guns roared to life, shaking the ground, the jungle trees, and even, seemingly, the air. Emerging from the foliage and trees, a patrol of Philippine scouts from the 57th Infantry fired on the Japanese, who returned shots. But the firefight was brief, and the Philippine scouts quickly withdrew from the road and into the jungle. This move encouraged the Japanese soldiers. Their leaders were correct. The Americans weren't ready for battle. So they sent reports back to Lieutenant General Akira Nara, telling him that the American and Filipino forces fled into the jungle without even putting up a fight. The Japanese leaders acted accordingly. And the very next day, January 10th, made their first demand for American surrender. Japan's General Masaharu Homa who commanded all Japanese forces on Bataan, wrote a letter to American General Douglas MacArthur. The letter was dropped behind the American front line by an airplane. In it, Homa said, The question is how long you will be able to resist. You have already cut rations by half. Your prestige and honor have been upheld. However, in order to avoid needless bloodshed and save your troops, you were advised to surrender. Failing that, our offensive will be continued with inexorable force. To his credit, Homa truly did want to save lives, both those of his own men and of the enemy. He was later criticized by his Japanese superiors for becoming too infected by Western ideas. MacArthur just happened to be inspecting the American front line the day that letter was dropped. During the frontline tour, under General Jonathan Wainwright, asked MacArthur if he'd like to inspect the large 155mm guns. MacArthur responded, I don't want to see them, I want to hear them. And MacArthur would soon get just that opportunity. When Homa's message reached MacArthur's hands, the American general saw no reason to offer a written reply to such impertinence. Instead, the only response Homa received to his surrender demand was increased action from the American artillery. Because the Japanese leadership had been wrong. The U.S. forces weren't demoralized. They weren't afraid of firefights. And they weren't going to just give up to an invasion army. No, the American and Filipino troops on Bataan were going to fight for the Philippines. 
And that fight had only just begun. This is Left Behind. Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by the Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Alma Sam, was one of the POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell stories of his fellow captives. This episode is the first of four episodes honoring Bataan's three Congressional Medal of Honor recipients. Alexander Nininger, Jose Calugas, and Willibald Bianchi. This episode and the next focus on the first Medal of Honor winner of World War II, Alexander Nininger. The Congressional Medal of Honor is the highest award for valor that a U.S. serviceman or woman can receive, and relatively few in U.S. history have. We'll also take a journey with a native Filipino soldier named Narciso Ortelano, whose actions earned him the Distinguished Service Cross, which is the second highest U.S. Army award. Now, as you listen to this episode, you're going to notice I have a lot more information on the U.S.-born Nininger than I have for native Filipino or Tolano. Finding records and information about native Filipino servicemen who did not immigrate to the U.S. in their later years is challenging for me. However, I feel it's vitally important to tell their stories with whatever information I can find. Still, there is an unfortunate information gap that I am looking for ways to overcome. Both Nininger and Ortolano were members of the Philippine Scouts 57th Infantry Regiment. You may recall from past episodes that the Philippine Scouts were U.S. Army units consisting mainly of highly trained native Filipino servicemen with American officers. The Philippine Scouts have been called the backbone of Bataan, and the heroic actions of Nininger and Ortolano absolutely represent that moniker. One of these men was very young, the other in his early 40s. One was single with a thirst for duty, the other was married with children and fighting for his homeland. So let's jump in. Narciso Ortolano was born in the Philippines on February 17, 1897, to parents Pablo Ortolano and Lucia Gronogovan. In August 1919, the 22-year-old enlisted in the U.S. Army's Philippine Scouts. He married his wife Esperanza in La Oag City, which is in the very north part of Luzon Island, the Philippines' largest island. The city is about 285 miles or 460 kilometers north of the Bataan Peninsula. The couple had at least two children during the 1930s. I am not certain if Ortolano remained in the Philippine Scouts during the 1930s and all the way through until World War II. I found an August 1940 U.S. Army enlistment record for him. Since I know he was in the Army as early as 1919, I'm not certain if he left the army and re-entered in 1940, or if he remained in the army the entire time and had to do some kind of re-enlistment paperwork in 1940. That August 1940 enlistment record records that Narciso was 43 years old, 5 feet 6 inches tall, weighed 125 pounds, and had experience as a taxi, bus, or tractor driver. 
Alexander Ramsey Nininger III was born on October 30, 1918 in Gainesville, Georgia, which is about 55 miles or 88 kilometers northeast of Atlanta. His parents were Alexander Alec Ramsey Nininger Jr. and Myrtle Craig. He had one older sister. Father Alec was a theater manager and was the black sheep of his family. He moved around a lot and, according to family story, may have been in a theater troupe before becoming a theater manager. He was married before Myrtle and had one daughter with that wife. Alexander Nininger III, who we're focusing on today, was nicknamed Sandy and went by that name throughout his life. So that's what I'm going to refer to him as throughout this episode. His official name was Alexander Ramsey Nininger III, but most records give him the title of Junior. And I don't know why, because his father and grandfather both had the same name, Alexander Ramsey Nininger, thus making Sandy the third Nininger man with that name. The Ramsey in their name comes from Sandy's great-grandmother, whose maiden name was Ramsey. Her brother was the first governor of Minnesota, and her son was the first Alexander Ramsey Nininger, so that is Sandy's grandfather. The Nininger and Ramsey families have deep, prestigious roots in Minnesota, especially in the St. Paul area. The town of Nininger in Minnesota, which is now a ghost town, was named after the Nininger family. Sandy's grandfather, Alexander Nininger Sr., attended West Point in the early 1860s and was in the Army just after the Civil War. Eventually, he became a Deputy U.S. Marshal in Huntsville, Alabama in the early 90s, the 1890s that is. Besides his grandfather, Sandy's family tree is filled with military men. Sandy's uncle Charles, who was Father Alec's brother, served overseas for 10 months during World War I. Sandy's great-grandfather, John Nininger, appears to have been in the military during the Civil War and was recommended to be appointed as Inspector of Horses in Chicago, Illinois, during the war. And Sandy's second great-grandfather, Anthony Nininger, who was an immigrant to the United States, reportedly was an officer during the War of 1812. By January 1920, when Sandy was 15 months old, Alec had moved his family to Tampa, Florida, and Sandy would spend the rest of his childhood in that state. Sometime in the 1920s, Sandy's parents, Alec and Myrtle, divorced, and Alec soon remarried. In January 1930, Sandy was 11 years old and living in Fort Lauderdale with his father, stepmother, sister, and stepbrother. Alec was working as a motion picture theater manager and told a reporter, Sandy had tremendous determination, and from the time he was a small boy, he never quit anything he started. He decided when he was about 11 years old he wanted to go to West Point and become an officer in the United States Army. From then on, nothing could stop him. While researching Sandy, I've learned a lot about his temper and disposition. I often don't find much, if any, of this type of information about the servicemen and women I research. Several newspaper sources, friends, reminiscences, and family stories mention how shy, mild-mannered, and ultra-determined Sandy was. And seemingly not cut out for the military career he was resolute to have. His first cousin, Richard Nininger, wrote, As a young boy, Sandy wanted to go to West Point. Knowing that athletes were favored, he strove to be on the high school football team, but was too thin and underweight. However, he persisted. 
That quote was read by Richard's great-niece, Avery Donninger, who is a distant cousin of Sandy's. Despite those disadvantages, Sandy continued questing after a West Point appointment and, during his senior year of high school, passed the West Point entrance examination and was admitted. This may be one of the ways he first showed an intense sense of duty. His cousin Richard described it as, quote, a strong desire to finish what he had started, compulsive, close quote. I find Richard's use of the word compulsive interesting, and we'll talk about that more later on in this episode. In his teen years, Sandy was a devout Christian scientist and acted as an usher at his Fort Lauderdale church. Sandy also developed an interest in the finer things of life, especially music and literature. A newspaper reporter wrote, Nininger was a gentle soul who loved music and poetry. His favorite composer was the romantic Moody Tchaikovsky. He was an artist at heart and his secret ambition was to write. His father was an actor who gave him an appreciation for the theater, but who was practical enough to chide him once for reading the lovely poetry of Baudelaire in French. Baudelaire was a French poet in the mid-1800s. Sandy never missed a chance to go to the opera or attend some dramatic performance. A fellow West Point cadet once recalled a memorable weekend leave with Sandy in New York City. They spent their time visiting museums and attending the opera. I get the impression the friend didn't enjoy the weekend as much as Sandy did. General Hugh Johnson, who knew Sandy at West Point, explained, That slight, slender young cadet struck me as almost too gentle and modest for the job. He was one of the most shy and retiring men in the Corps, at the same time being well-loved and respected by everybody. And Sandy truly was a popular leader at West Point in the late 1930s and very early 40s. He was president of the lecture committee and organized several guest lecturers. Sandy also organized concerts and theater productions. He persuaded singer Helen Jepsen, a famous soprano with the Metropolitan Opera, to give an afternoon concert at West Point. There's a picture of Jepsen standing with Sandy after that concert. It's on my website, and the link is in the show description. He also, quote, brought the play Arsenic and Old Lace to the Academy, close quote. Regarding Sandy, the West Point yearbook stated, "'Tis not what man does which exalts him, but what man would do. It was Sandy's good fortune to be provided with the means and the background necessary to know and appreciate the many arts. His interest in the theater, a devotion to books and music, and a love for painting make him an excellent conversationalist." Sandy graduated West Point in June 1941 as a second lieutenant. He planned to spend his first Army paycheck on a phonograph and some symphony records. General Hugh Johnson further said, I have seen thousands of young men, but I shall never forget him. He was so gracious, so courteous, had such wonderful charm, and so much unaffected modesty combined with virility. I shall always feel his good influence. After graduation, Sandy spent time at Fort Benning in Georgia, and then he was sent to the Philippines in November 1941 and became a member of the Philippine Scouts 57th Infantry, just as World War II began. Narciso Ortolano was also a member of this unit. I don't know if the men were in the same company or knew each other, but both of their actions with the 57th Infantry would soon echo across the United States. 
The Battle for Bataan started at 3 p.m. on January 9, 1942, one month after Japan first attacked the Philippines. During late December into early January, all U.S. forces on Luzon Island withdrew to the Bataan Peninsula. For most U.S. Army forces, it was a fighting withdrawal, as they attempted to hold back Japanese forces so that all U.S. forces could get to Bataan. Of those early days of World War II, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, Immediately after this war started, Japanese forces moved down on either side of the Philippines to numerous points south of them, thereby completely encircling the Philippines from north and south and east and west. It is that complete encirclement with control of the air by Japanese land-based aircraft which has prevented us from sending substantial reinforcements of men and material to the gallant defenders of the Philippines. For 40 years, it has always been our strategy, a strategy born of necessity, that in the event of a full-scale attack on the islands by Japan, we should fight a delaying action, attempting to retire slowly into Bataan Peninsula and Corregidor. We knew that the war as a whole would have to be fought and won by a process of attrition against Japan itself. We knew all along that with our greater resources, we could ultimately outbuild Japan and overwhelm her on sea and on land and in the air. We knew that to obtain our objective, many varieties of operations would be necessary in areas other than the Philippines. <coughs> now, nothing that has occurred in the past two months has caused us to revise this basic strategy of necessity, except that the defense put up by General MacArthur has magnificently exceeded the previous estimates of endurance, and he and his men are gaining eternal glory therefore. Once on Bataan, the U.S. forces established two front lines in northern Bataan, the Abuke Line, near the city of Abuke, was on the eastern side of the peninsula, on the northeastern slopes of Mount Natib, part of the several mountains that divided the peninsula's east coast from its west. Soon thereafter, the United States would establish the Ma'uban Line on the western side of the peninsula. The two lines were approximately at the same latitude, but separated by mountains. The 57th Infantry of Philippine Scouts again, which Ortolano and Nininger were part of, guarded the easternmost part of the Abuque line, which included the East Road. I've got maps of these areas on my website if you're interested. The 57th Infantry was supported by artillery units, so those big guns and cannons. Infantry fighting began in earnest on January 11th. Before that, it was mainly artillery fire from both sides. That night of January 11th, starting around 11 p.m., Japanese infantry reached a sugarcane field that wasn't well guarded with U.S. infantry, the Americans believing it would be well defended by their artillery. The Japanese started by shelling the American line, which the U.S.'s 24th artillery answered. Philippine war historian Lewis Morton, who wrote the U.S. Army book The War in the Pacific, The Fall of the Philippines, explained, 
Hardly had the 24th opened fire than the Japanese infantry jumped off in a bonsai attack across the moonlit patch of ground in front of the Philippine Scouts 57th Infantry's Company I. Wave after wave of screaming Japanese troops hurled themselves forward in the face of intense fire. Men in the leading wave threw themselves on the barbed wire entanglements, forming human bridges over which succeeding waves could pass. A bonsai attack was an Allied forces term for Japanese human wave attacks and swarming staged by infantry units. The term came from the Japanese battle cry, Tenohika Banzai, meaning His Majesty the Emperor shall live to be 10,000 years old. So, in many ways, such an attack would often be a suicide attack. Morton continued, Despite the appalling effects of the point-blank fire from the American large artillery guns, the Japanese continued their ferocious attack until the Philippine Scouts 57th Infantry's Company I finally gave ground. With the Philippine Scouts 57th Infantry companies being pushed back from the front line, the 57th Infantry's commander sent a reserve company into the Malay. But when those reinforcements failed to stop the Japanese attack in advance, the commander sent in a second reserved unit. That addition finally stalled the Japanese attack. Morton continued, At the approach of dawn, the Philippine scouts, 57th Infantry, began a counterattack which took them almost to the original line. When the action was broken off on the morning of the 12th, there were an estimated 200 to 300 dead Japanese on the field of battle. During this fight, Private Narciso Ortolano was manning a machine gun nest, alone, when 11 Japanese soldiers sprang at him in a bonsai attack. Ortolano killed four soldiers with his machine gun, and then it jammed. Undaunted, the 45-year-old Filipino pulled out his automatic pistol and killed five more, shooting until his ammunition was spent. Ortolano was now weaponless, and facing two enemies armed with bayoneted rifles. One of the soldiers thrust at Ortolano with a fixed bayonet, and Ortolano grabbed the rifle. Reports aren't 100% clear, but he may have grabbed the bayonet's blade, which severed his thumb. Or that original thrust may have severed his thumb. Either way, Ortolano's thumb was severed from his hand during the skirmish. But despite this wound, Ortolano wrestled that rifle away from the soldier, just as he was wounded in the back by the second Japanese soldier. An official record states, During the brief struggle, Ortolano was wounded in the back by a remaining hostile soldier whom he killed with the bayonet which he had wrested from the first. Turning, he fired upon and killed the first of the two enemies who, by this time, was fleeing. He had, single-handedly, taken down an entire platoon of Japanese soldiers. When his own platoon mates got to his position, they found Ortolano working to repair the jammed machine gun while bleeding profusely from his injuries. He was taken to Baton's Field Hospital No. 1, which I described in episode 15, where they treated his severed thumb. I haven't found records of whether he was allowed to return to battle after his wound healed. Newspapers around the United States touted Ortolano's actions. First Class Private Narciso Ortolano has just set a new Bataan province record. He has killed 11 Japanese soldiers single-handed in one engagement. Another newspaper said, 
This one-man gang representing a race of soldiers, which two generals and a marine colonel on Bataan Peninsula have described as the finest in the world, got in his licks against the Japanese in a recent hand-to-hand -hand battle. A third paper printed, Ortolano, a veteran of the Philippine Scouts, has been recommended for the Distinguished Service Cross by his commanding officer. And he did receive that Distinguished Service Cross, the U.S. Army's second highest service award, for his actions in the machine gun nest. After recounting the details of the fight, the citation reads, Private First Class Ortolano's intrepid actions, personal bravery, and zealous devotion to duty exemplify the highest traditions of the military forces of the United States and reflect great credit upon himself, his unit, and the Philippine scouts. While Ortolano was heading to the Bataan Field Hospital, the Philippine scouts 57th Infantry and Sandy Nininger continued fighting the Japanese. During that previously described attack on the night of January 11th to 12th, the same night Ortolano was injured, some Japanese soldiers infiltrated past the line into the Philippine Scout 57th Infantry's 3rd Battalion area. The 57th Infantry soldiers spent January 12th looking for and eliminating Japanese soldiers, one by one, in hand-to-hand -hand combat. But this caused a lot of Philippine Scout casualties. So, the 57th assembled sniper parties with riflemen and demolition engineers. These parties began a systematic search of the area for Japanese infiltrators. Lieutenant Alexander Nininger led one of the sniper parties, and actually, he wasn't even part of the company participating in these sniper parties. His own company wasn't engaged in combat at the time. I believe they were being held in the rear as reinforcements. A military citation explained, this officer, though assigned to another company not then engaged in combat, voluntarily attached himself to Company K, while that unit was being attacked by enemy forces superior in firepower. Enemy snipers in trees and foxholes had stopped a counterattack to regain part of the position. In the hand-to-hand -hand fighting which followed, 2nd Lieutenant Nininger repeatedly forced his way to and into the hostile position. At some point, he became separated from the rest of his sniper party, alone, Armed with hand grenades and a rifle, and already wounded three times, Sandy continued pushing far into the enemy positions, attacking with the grenades and his rifle. The citation continues, Though exposed to heavy enemy fire, he continued to attack with rifle and hand grenades and succeeded in destroying several enemy groups and foxholes and enemy snipers. Some newspaper accounts suggest Sandy's actions forced a somewhat large-scale enemy retreat. I think that might be an exaggeration. The idea of one man with a rifle and grenades causing a large number of enemy soldiers to retreat makes a great story, but it doesn't seem all that likely. When the 57th Infantry finally secured the position and pushed out all the Japanese, they found Sandy's body. Next to him were the bodies of a Japanese officer and two soldiers. The 23-year-old who was just seven months into his dreamed-of military career, had sacrificed his life to secure the American line. Lieutenant Sandy Nininger became the first person in World War II to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor, the United States military's highest award. A U.S. War Department press release touted, First to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor in World War II was 2nd Lieutenant Alexander Ramsey Nininger Jr. of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 
for heroism in action January 12, 1942, on Bataan during the first days of our war against the Empire of Japan. It went on to describe the action for which Sandy received the medal, as well as to describe his life and character. Sandy became a national hero during a time when the United States, still licking its wounds from Pearl Harbor, needed a hero. Newspapers around the United States ran the story. Quick note here. Although the Medal of Honor was awarded to Sandy first, several other U.S. servicemen would later receive the Medal of Honor for actions they did earlier in the war, including a Filipino soldier named Jose Calugas, who we'll meet in an upcoming episode. Sandy's Medal of Honor was presented to his father, Alec Nininger, at a military headquarters in Tampa, Florida on February 10, 1942, barely a month after Sandy died and just two months into World War II. U.S. newspapers printed stories, headlines, and pictures of the ceremony and again recounted Sandy's heroic actions. Several newspapers even found ways to connect the hero with their own communities, such as a Huntsville, Alabama newspaper that, under the headline, Nininger Family Once Lived Here, explained how Sandy's grandfather, the first Alexander Ramsey Nininger, was a U.S. Marshal in Huntsville and, quote, made a host of warm friends, close quote. Newspapers interviewed or published letters from friends of Nininger, including General Hugh Johnson, who knew Sandy at West Point. In a letter to the New York Times, he wrote, The Medal of Honor decoration is the hardest in the world to get. In all our wars, only a few have been awarded. The act must not be merely brave. It must be brave beyond belief and be, by no stretch of the imagination, one that could not reasonably be expected of any soldier in line of duty. Sandy's father, Alec, told a newspaper, We are terribly proud. It's just like him. He had tremendous determination, and from the time he was a small boy, he never quit anything he started. His death is a great blow, but I'm glad he did his duty right through to the end, just as he always did. Determination, duty, never quitting. The words are used so often in describing Sandy, both for the way he lived his life and his last self-sacrificing action. In some ways, those descriptions of him seem so opposite to the other terms the same people used to describe him. Retiring, shy, gentle, modest, romantic. Sandy's first cousin, Richard Nininger, added another word to those descriptions, compulsive. He wrote that Sandy had, quote, a strong desire to finish what he had started, compulsive, close quote. Of Sandy's actions on Bataan, Richard described, Adrenaline flowing and without regard for the consequences, his compulsive sense of duty and romantic disposition clouded his sense of reality. Cousin Richard, who died in October 2022, was nearly 10 years younger than Sandy, but he did know the young lieutenant. Richard even lived with Sandy's father Alec and stepmother during the World War II years, beginning shortly after Sandy died. So, given those circumstances, I find his comments regarding Sandy very interesting, especially the compulsive part. In 2004, author Malcolm Gladwell, famous for authoring the book Tipping Point and others, wrote an article for Annals of Psychology that features Sandy's action on Bataan. In it, Gladwell said, Nininger didn't know that he was fearless and ferocious. On a printed out version of this article, Cousin Richard handwrote this response. He wasn't fearless or ferocious. See above. 
referring to his own earlier notes about Sandy's tendency to compulsion and romanticism. If you're interested in the Malcolm Gladwell article, I've linked to it on my website. Sandy's cousin Richard's comments have really made me ponder the frame of mind Sandy would have been in during those last moments of his life. What really did drive Sandy into those Japanese positions and foxholes? Alone and voluntarily, because, remember, he wasn't officially part of the company assigned to this mission. Determination, adrenaline, gentleness, compulsion, modesty, duty, romantic? I find myself wondering, what characteristics truly define a hero? Along somewhat similar lines, I had the opportunity to speak with Sandy's nephew, John Patterson. John's mother was Sandy's older sister. John met Sandy once as a child, just after Sandy had graduated from West Point. John recalls Sandy showing him his uniform. When John was older, he wanted to know more about his uncle and the actions for which he received the Medal of Honor. At first, John wondered if the United States needed a hero and made Sandy that hero, perhaps by exaggerating Sandy's actions in combat. Was Sandy, in fact, worthy of such an award? John had the opportunity to speak with Sandy's comrades-in-arms, including a sergeant who served under Sandy and who went with Sandy during their first foray into battle. This sergeant's and other accounts quickly convinced John that Sandy's heroic actions on January 12th were true, not exaggerated, and absolutely worthy of the medal. John told me that Sandy was an inspiration for a desperate time, and especially so on the home front. And he's very proud of Sandy. In May 1943, about 16 months after Sandy's death, Philippines President Manuel Quezon, who was exiled in the U.S. at that time, wrote a letter to Nininger's father saying, Filipinos will never forget your son, nor any of his brave countrymen who helped us defend our homeland. Today, the 1st Division of Cadet Barracks at West Point is named in Sandy's honor, as is the Nininger Range at the Infantry School at Fort Benning, Georgia, and the Alexander Sandy Nininger State Veterans Nursing Home in Florida. In addition, two World War-era U.S. Navy transport ships were also named after him. In a tribute to his uncle, John Patterson wrote, quote, My uncle's heroism has been commemorated in a number of ways, and, of course, the quiet hero lives on in the hearts of his family and those who knew him. Close quote. Turning our attention back to Narciso Ortolano, in February 1943, Pathé News, a United Kingdom producer of documentaries and newsreels, made a movie about Narciso Ortolano's heroic actions on Bataan. It was called There Shall Be Freedom and was scheduled to be released immediately in South America and after the war in the Philippines. I have searched for this film, but I can't find it online or even in the producer's digital archives. IMDb doesn't have a record of the film either. Bummer. In April 1945, so just after the U.S. returned to the Philippines, Ortolano was admitted to the military's general hospital in the Philippines. The medical record records that he was in for refitting for amputation of thumb and for chronic and advanced tuberculosis. The doctors apparently forced air into the pleural cavity surrounding the lungs in order to collapse that lung. I'm not certain why or how this helps with tuberculosis, and I haven't been easily able to find answers online. 
Ortolana remained in the hospital for about a year and a half, according to the military's hospital records I found. He was also discharged from the army for disability at that time. And, sadly, that's really all I have discovered about Narciso for the next three decades. 83-year-old Narciso Ortolano died in the Philippines, and I haven't discovered where he's buried. Similarly, I do not know the whereabouts of Sandy's remains. His remains were officially reported in U.S. Army documents as resting in the St. Dominic Parish Church Cemetery, Grave 9, in the town of Abuque on Bataan. However, today we know that information is false, given to U.S. Army officials and Sandy's own family by an individual who was no longer on Bataan when Sandy died. Thus, due to the inaccurate information, Sandy's remains could not be identified after the war when U.S. officials sought to find the battlefield graves of American servicemen and reinter them in national or hometown cemeteries. So, today, Sandy's remains are considered non-recoverable. His name is inscribed on the Tablets of the Missing at Manila American Cemetery. And a cenotaph, that's a monument or grave marker for someone buried elsewhere, was erected in his honor at Arlington National Cemetery in 2010. However, several people, including Sandy's nephew John Patterson, believe Sandy's remains are buried in a grave marked unknown at Manila American Cemetery. According to a 2017 news article, the Nininger family believes that the lieutenant's bones rest in grave J720 at the American Cemetery in Manila. For 70 years, the family has been pressing the military to identify the remains and bring the fallen lieutenant home. That same year, Patterson and several others sued the U.S. Department of Defense to make them identify the remains of Sandy and six others considered missing in action and or non-recoverable. The petition argued that, By not using readily available DNA testing to identify the remains, the department is flouting its legal duty to track down, quote, missing persons from past conflicts or their remains after hostilities have ceased, close quote. And I've discovered that there are many instances of misidentification of remains and of remains being sent back to the United States, reinterred in military or hometown cemeteries, only to later discover that the remains in those graves are not those they purport to be. Included in that list is Nininger's best friend, who was in the same West Point graduating class as Nininger. More on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thanks for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Ortolano's and Ninja's stories on my website. The link is in the show description. If you'd like to know more details about the battles on Bataan, I suggest the book, The War in the Pacific, The Fall of the Philippines by Lewis Morton. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe so you'll get notifications when new episodes drop. And please share it with a friend. Spreading the word about this podcast lets me continue sharing these amazing stories. Left Behind is researched, written, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Tyler Harmon, Paul Sutherland, and Avery Doninger. Special thanks to John Patterson and Avery Doninger for their help and information regarding Sandy Nininger. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken with dialogue. 
I'll be back next time with the journey to identify the remains of two baton heroes. Thank you.